Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Brenda Sandberg, senior editor Bridget Silverman, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is April 22nd, 2022. We may be recovering from spring break, but we still saw some interesting FDA news this week as people returned from the beach. First, we're going to look at COVID-19 vaccines. The CDC's Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices met to discuss the booster policy going forward. Brenda, it seemed like some of the experts think the goal should no longer to be preventing infections. Yes, that is. They, they weren't asked to vote on anything or make recommendations, but the, the basic question posed to them was, you know, to talk about the primary goal for future doses and and, and um, what would be important to review. And there was an overwhelming uh, crescendo of opinion that any future booster doses, they should um, they should be taken to reduce infection. They shouldn't be taken to reduce infection, um, but they should be taken to reduce severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And there was discussion, of, you know, some some data was given about the f- efficacy of boosters and the and the overall um, the overall take on that is that um, there's really very incremental advantages of getting a booster and you know it's 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 a question of of, of whether um it's worth worth that and um there's also quite several times mentioned a booster fatigue that if if you um are trying to you know ask a large part portion of the population to get a booster every four to six months it's it's not sustainable and they the population just won't won't do it on the you know higher of it and also it could affect the 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 views that people have of the effectiveness of the vaccine program. Yeah, that's Yeah, certain oh, go ahead, Derek. Sorry, I was going to say that that that's interesting I, I guess I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm just still kind of blending together all of everything all the vaccine policy decisions that have been made over the last 2 years, but I mean is that a big change in position to just say we're only vaccinating to prevent, you know, hospitalization and severe disease? Because I mean, th- there was a debate early on whether or not these actually prevented infections, right? Right. One of the one of the um, panelists said oh, in the beginning that's what our focus was. Where we were, it, it was such a crisis that our focus was on just stopping infection entirely. But now that everybody's then gotten the primary series and a boost first booster and and um, they're in good shape. So uh, th- that should be that should be sufficient for most of the people people who aren't immunocompromised. And um, you, uh, then there would be potentially an annual booster. Brenda, I was sort of struck by this uh, um, almost air of resignation that they had. I think there was a lot of hope. Uh, uh, with the vaccines, when that initial data came out, what was you know 95% uh, efficacy or uh, um, what have you, that it sort of could you know provide sterilizing immunity, as the uh, unfortunate ter- uh, turn of phrase that they were uh, using there uh, um, uh, was. Uh, it may help fuel some of those conspiracy theories, but uh, um, it uh, um, it does seem like now that uh, um, they uh, um, uh, don't think that there's going to be sort of any way to kind of eliminate the uh, the coronavirus and we all just have to sort of learn to uh, learn to live with it. Is that sort of uh, your impression of sort of how the meeting went? Yeah, that's true. Although one person said, and I thought this was a good way to uh, say it, um, 
we should celebrate the vaccine because it is doing its job. And, and um, uh, you know, it would be good in the future to have a vaccine that eliminated infection, but uh, we're not there yet. And, and the focus should really be on making sure everybody gets a primary series and a first booster. And then, you know, um, there, there are other, um, you know, antivirals, um, the monoclonal antibodies that can, you know, take care of disease, but it also keeps people like having mild, a mild infection or, you know, they're not being hospitalized and not dying. And so that's, that's a good thing. So, um, yeah, so it was like true. It's like, yeah, we're not going to be able to get rid of this entirely, but also it's the vaccines are great at what they, what they, what they're doing and we should be happy about them. So the thinking kind of is to sort of, Event, you know, hopefully get it to the point where it's like the flu, where I mean, you know, yeah, people get the yeah. flu every year, but you know, you get a shot for the flu every year, and hopefully mm-hmm. that keeps the symptoms as mild as they can, so you're not in the, stuck in the hospital or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't want to think about what the uh, the flu vaccination rate is going to uh, be uh, after our uh, um, uh, long national uh, divisiveness over. Uh, COVID vaccines, and it seems to be spilling over into other ones. It'll be, uh, uh, hopefully it'll encourage everyone to uh, get some sort of, you know, flu COVID combo as those things uh, come out, but it could uh, could lead to an overall decline in, in vaccination. Yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, th- this is going to be an interesting, an interesting issue going forward. And, you know, as we, as we, as we all think about this and trying to, you know, and try and get back to, well, whatever the, I, I don't like saying get back to normal because, it, there is no more normal from pre-pandemic, but um, we, Brenda, we also saw, I guess, during this meeting, FDA officials were talking about, you know, kind of the some issues they have with the EUA fact sheets and kind of keeping up with those and, and the detail that that's in them. Yeah, that um, Jordan Fink uh, spoke at the meeting and he gave an update on what had happened at the uh, vaccines and unrelated biologicals um, advisory committee meeting last last week um, and after his presentation um, the, the, a representative from the American Pharmacists Association asked him specifically about that question he said where does where does he think FDA's heading with regard to approving vaccines uh, under a BLA versus authorization under an EUA um, and he no- noted that um, you know the, the indications under the BLA it's it's indicated for a broad indication for prevention of infection and doesn't recommend things like interval between shots. And so, so Dorn think like responded to that. And he said, that's an important question. And, um, and you know, FDA does would prefer to go back to that historical approach of, of, of approving vaccines for primary primary series and a booster. Um, he said it's a, and he said it's a daily challenge to think about the complexities of conditions of emergency authorization. Um, and the labeled indications are under an EUA are different than those under a, a, a BLA. They're more complex. And um, he gave in this example, the flu vaccine, where he said the label doesn't say, it doesn't say anything about a person's previous vaccination or compare the vaccine that they took before to the one they're they're take they're potentially taking um, now that whether they're heterologous or homologous you know different different in structure um, and so so 
he he didn't like say anything specific about um, the COVID vaccines EUA, um, and there's been um, two BLAs approved for um, Pfizer's and um, Moderna's vaccines. But I don't know if you remember that when Spike that Spikevax was their BLA was approved, um, the, the indication the label did not say anything about the, the risk of myocardial myocarditis compared to other mRNA vaccines and the fact sheet had. So that was an example where there was a disparity between the EUA fact sheet and the VLA approved label. Yeah, it it's interesting. And, you know, because we're because we're all journalists, we're, we're all in favor of, you know, more information rather than less. And the, the, the you know, and, and I know it's not as simple. It's not as black and white as that. But, um, you know, the, the it, it's interesting that they talk about that that the it it seems like the more information that are in these EUA fact sheets and by design and by necessity seems to be kind of like creating a lot more questions and creating you know more I don't want to say problems but just you know just like kind of you know it creates more issues for them because you know just having more information in there because they have to as opposed mm-hmm. to just doing a conventional vaccine approval where you just say, get the vaccine and move on with your day. It is interesting to see this uh, dynamic between uh, what FDA knows about a product and what uh, goes on the labels or play out in such uh, real time. I mean, we've often uh, um, discussed and, uh, you know, written extensively about uh, um, how the labels for other products have been put together sort of based on uh, review documents that we've gotten from uh, the FDA, it's sort of kind of compared uh, advisory committee discussion to sort of, kind of how the uh, um, indication ended up with, uh, you know, non-pandemic uh, uh, vaccines and just sort of kind of uh, more routine approvals. But uh, um, the uh, the fact that sort of, kind of all this stuff has to sort of go in the EUA uh, um, uh, fact sheet suggests to me that sort of maybe uh, uh, there might be uh, some, some effort to tone down the uh, EUA requirements, uh, although uh, um, I don't know sort of how much appetite there is in uh, on Capitol Hill for that kind of a uh, um, an effort, but it is sort of uh, interesting to see that that something that's sort of kind of described as an emergency uh, um, uh, effort is in fact much more elaborate than uh, um, than the sort of regular label that we're used to. Aware Sorry, of that ahead. until you? No, I just I, I was struck by that. Um, it it jumped out at me because I wasn't aware that of the differential between the UA fact sheet and the label. Um, I didn't realize there was. Uh, there was like an issue over that for for the ASIP members and what that meant for their role in making recommendations. Yeah, it, you know, you you mentioned too that the, there were comments that we need to celebrate, you know, kind of the the vac, you know, the vaccine and development of the vaccine and 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 so forth. And and you've you know, we've heard that a lot that this is a basically a scientific miracle. But I mean, it it you know, it it's also a it's also a miracle that we've basically come from knowing essentially nothing about how an mRNA vaccine for COVID would work to in two years having enough to do what, how many pages is the fact sheet? Like 25 or 30 with, you know, data, you know, and, and in some, a lot of cases really specific data on adverse events and, 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 um, you know how the how the different different vaccines work with each you know you know with each other so you can do heterologous boosting and 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 so forth. I mean it's 
it actually is pretty impressive that they've that they've been able to come up with basically make this problem for themselves. <laughs> but this is definitely something to watch, and you know, certainly we'll uh, we'll continue to move. You know, as we continue to move towards the next phase of the pandemic, we'll have to see how um, the FDA and the CDC move on. You know, kind of move this issue forward. Right. Um, the the VERPAC meeting last week focused on they were asking about how to go about um, making strange changes in the composition. So the focus is on getting ready for, you know, a, a booster, kind of a fall winter booster for for uh, COVID vaccination. Um, so it it seems like that they're moving ahead with that and on, on, on different tracks and ASAP didn't really address that. I mean, obviously it will be another meeting that 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 will that issue will be raised and they'll be, you know, looking into, um, you know, approving the next booster. But that that detail wasn't wasn't in this meeting. It was more a, a very broad discussion. Yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see what they you know, what the, the topic of the next discussion is, too, as they keep going forward on this. Next up is new FDA guidance to better ensure clinical trial diversity. Bridget, you looked at this. It seems like the agency wants more plans now. Yeah, um, I thought this was a, a an interesting draft guidance um, because it's starting to to move a lot of the um, goals and aspirations into a more operational sense of how how are we doing this really? You know, what steps are we taking? Um, so uh, the draft guidance on diversity plans to improve enrollment of participants from underrepresented racial and ethnic populations in clinical trials was released on April 13th. Um, and uh, it focuses on these uh, diversity plans, which you should be discussing with FDA um, as soon as practicable, the, uh, the guidance says, um, and certainly no later than the end of phase two stage. Um, and the idea is that this uh, this plan would take a, a you know be a, a pretty broad document that you know starts with you know your overview of disease and conditions, um, talks about your uh, the scope of your medical development program, um, goals for uh, enrollment of underrepresented participants. Um, and then uh, a specific plan of action to enroll and retain diverse trial participants. And you need to describe in detail specific operational measures to enroll and retain diverse patients. Um, and then uh, you need to, um, uh, throughout development, be uh, updating the uh, diversity plan with your status of how you're meeting your enrollment goals. Um, and uh, also setting out a plan of if you miss your enrollment goals, um, what are you going to do to collect post-marketing data? Um, so uh, you know this is this is largely sort of an administrative thing, but it's also I think a um, significant, as I said, in in moving from aspiration to reality. Um, uh, the draft guidance is written by or developed by the Oncology Center of Excellence's Project Equity Initiative, um, but they worked with uh, the Drugs, Biologics, Devices Centers, 
um, and the diversity plan concept applies to drugs, biologics, medical devices. Um, you know, this is this is an FDA wide uh, initiative. Um, and uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting about the guidance is that it points out that um, how the increasing reliance on relatively small studies uh, with intermediate endpoints, um, innovative study designs, all of these things that work to develop to uh, expedite development, um, especially in serious uh, or rare diseases, um, make it a, a real issue for diversity uh, and, and, and making sure that you, you get the diverse trial population when you've got such a, um, a, a, a tiny group. The uh, one of the interesting things is that this diversity plan um, really sort of fits in with a lot of legislative efforts, um, and uh, you know, and and uh, legislative action on autumn, uh, and um, in particular, the the diversity plan draft guidance seems to align well with the um, Depict Act, which also calls for sponsors to develop an action plan about how enrollment targets um, and requiring annual an annual report on progress. So, uh, you know, uh, um, I think that this is this is a, 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 a small and somewhat technical document, but um, it it is another step on the road. Sure. We've uh, certainly seen a, uh, a lot of uh, commitment by uh, companies, especially over the past few years, uh, you know, following the outcry over the uh, uh, murder of uh, George Floyd and uh, push for more equity, uh, um, stemming from those uh, uh, those movements. Um, but as you say, it's a guidance, and well, the, and then you talk about legislation, but the legislation itself isn't sort of kind of requiring anything more than a plan. Do you do you see companies that sort of don't follow the guidance getting in trouble somehow, or is there sort of more of a stick coming down the road, or is it just a uh, a good uh, um, roadmap for planting some carrots that? Uh, um, Companies should uh, should be well to uh, um, well advised to uh, to follow. Um, I think the you know the 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 plan sort of care the uh, gu draft guidance carefully says that this will be an important part of your um, uh, NDA BLA ultimately. So um, you know I think that that's something of a, a coded um, you better do this. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, it, uh, you know, a lot of, with a lot of things, you know, I, I suppose you get out what you put in. So I'm, I'm going to just be, I'm going to ask the jaded question and call me the Debbie Downer or the devil's advocate or whatever. But I mean, Bridget, you know, as well as I do that FDA has been pushing for more diversity in clinical trials for years i mean it's probably going on decades now um they've you know they 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 uh trying to get rid of the, the the unnecessary exclusions when when you know they're reviewing trial designs during the you know the preclinical phases you know they they're pu they publish data on the makeup of clinical trial subjects after approvals and you know trying to kind mm -hmm. of put some pressure on on sponsors to do this i mean i mean is this what finally gets this over the hump 
is I mean, you know, is I doubt this is what <laughs> finally gets it over the hump. Um, but you know, it's it's uh, a rung on the ladder. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're, I mean, obviously, you're going to be. There's going to be situations where you know, the the opportunity to to get a diverse trial population is limited because of the nature of the disease, and you know, I think FDA recognizes that, and sponsors yeah. recognize that. But you know, we've seen it. We, we saw it with the vaccine trials where they. You know, they kind of tried to do it and then it was it became kind of, you know, the the, the numbers kind of lagged and, you know, and people, you know, there were there was criticism of that. So I'm just curious if, you know, saying you have a plan, you know, you need a plan ahead of time. But, you know, we all know plans get changed and yes. you know, plans you get know, thrown out in the midst of, you know, trying to enroll trials. So, you know, in theory, you know, the the the. The guidance sort of is um, preparing for that because that it says that you know your metrics to ensure enrollment goals are achieved uh, also need to come with specifying actions to be implemented if the enrollment goals are not met. Um, and then it it does specifically mention that you know how are you going to do this post marketing? Um, so uh, you know, FDA does have the ability to 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 uh, impose um, post marketing requirements and and commitments, and um, I think it it might be signaling that uh, the chickens are, are are going to come home to roost at some point. I don't know. I was just going to say I noticed in advisory committee meetings, um, members will ask. Uh, ask specifically that question and hone in on it. And I don't know if that's new, but it just seems like much more attention is being paid to it by the public and and now by FDA. Well, not just now, but for yeah. for, for a long, long time. But I just feel like the pressure has built up and that it becomes um, a public um, uh, a public affairs kind of question. It, it, it Everything is honed in on that. So if, if a study doesn't have diversity in enrollment, their the company is called out on it publicly. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the the public shaming aspect is uh, is is probably pretty powerful. You know, but you know, Brenda, you've you've done a lot of really great coverage on what individual companies are are talking about doing. Um, you know, pharma and bio. Uh, you know, there's there's so much work in this area. Um, so much talk in this area, perhaps, um, that, uh, you know, I think anything where there is a, a, you have to set metrics and you have to, you can track our people meeting the metrics um, is not necessarily perfect or ideal, but at least it gives you something to look right, at. Right, right. Well, I don't know if this had always happened or I just noticed it more, but covering, you know, major conferences, there's now always a panel on diversity. And that's that that, I don't, that seemed to be like a reflection of it gaining more attention than it had in the past. Yeah, you also wonder, too, if if something like, you know, this guidance has to be would have to be coupled with you know, a lot of the things that like Janet Woodcock and some other people have been talking about, you know, we're talking about during the pandemic, which was that, you know, we can't have trials confined to academic medical centers or the same sites over and over and over again, or, you know, you have to kind of, you know, get, get the, um, you know, the local 
you know, they, they say the local community health centers involved and, you know, and that and that comes with training additional investigators and, you know, and, you know, kind of, you know, all these kinds of things that, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, the kind of the cascading chain, you know, thing, things happen. And then that kind of cha- allows you to have more, um, you know, to get to get, you know, more representative populations in the in the trials and and just and make it and in addition to making it easier to kind of get get a lot of this work done but yeah it, it it's it's a it's it's interesting to see if you know it's interesting to see it'll be interesting to see how industry reacts to this too um you know at least with the the comments and whether if you know sponsors talk about it, if this is feasible and if it's if it's not feasible or burdensome and 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 so forth and uh you know so We'll surely be watching for that. <clears throat> Finally, we're going to look at an issue that most of us are dealing with now, the return to the office. We've been working at home for so long, it's becoming difficult to find a reason to go back now, you, you know, now that it's uh, now that it's allowed. I know I don't miss the traffic and the time lost to commuting like probably most of most of my colleagues and, fr- and uh, friends in the workforce. But there are some advantages to being around all those people in the office that companies in the FDA want to recapture. So staff at FDA now are starting to go back, but they're finding it it's pretty lonely when they get there. Uh, one staffer said that the only person that he saw was were the security people when he walked in, and he saw a few facilities people while he was you know, actually in his office working, and that was it. There was like none none of his colleagues that he worked directly with. He said his floor was pretty much empty. Um, another FDA staffer went back to to White Oak and only saw one other person in the hallway while he was there. And you know, so obviously now this is something that managers at FDA are starting to think about. And uh, you know, because they want they want people to come back to work for the benefits that you get working with colleagues in person. And um, you know that there there are people uh, people miss the collaboration aspects of it and the you know the kind of you know, just having conversations with colleagues and talking about things without having to, you know, reserve time in your Outlook calendar to make a call and, and you know, make kind of a, you know, big project out of some, out of some of these things that can be taken care of just by, you know, with five second conversations in the, in the hallway or the lunchroom or whatever. Um, FDA has kind of a, an, an interesting kind of policy set up now where they're requiring uh, employees to be in the office one day a pay period, which results in about twice a month, and they can't really kind of coordinate that. Where so like team entire teams are in the office at the same time, so they can collaborate. Which but you are starting to see that um, some of some of the um, industry folks that um, I heard talk about this are saying they're starting to kind of kind of try and do that at least as much as they can. Um, but I'm curious what you all think of this. Obviously, you know, we are, we don't have kind of the same uh, situation that the FDA had before the pandemic and now, you know, now during the pandemic. But um, do, do you think we're seeing kind of the future of work at the FDA here with, you know, kind of remote and then, you know, maybe kind of showing up at the office, you know, once in a while? Yeah, I think that's uh, the way that most uh, um, offices are going to be uh, going, I, I suspect. Uh, I, I also have full faith that uh, 
FDA uh, staff is going to be able to figure out how to uh, make sure that uh, um, all all the team members who show up on the same day, even if it's not sort of uh, uh, mandated to do that. Uh, obviously, if you have to be in the office anyway, you might as well make it worth your time by uh, picking the day that sort of kind of uh, most of your colleagues will be in there. And uh, they uh, they've, they've accomplished a great deal uh, in the in the pandemic uh, remotely, so I'm sure they can uh, you know, crack that uh, scheduling nut too. But uh, it's uh, it's funny to think of uh, White Oak as uh, um, as empty because. Uh, um, you know, uh, before the pandemic, we were always running about how over, overcrowded it was and how they were, uh, you know, sometimes we're kind of forcing uh, remote work on people or we're kind of having to go to satellite offices because there was uh, just not any room in uh, um, in White Oak. And, uh, you know, now, uh, Derek, you're reporting about how when they recruit people, they say you'll never have to come into the office. And so it's a uh, um, so sort of kind of uh, the world has turned upside down or at least we're kind of all the office chairs have turned upside down or uh, um, that's just uh, how it's going to be going forward. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting how they, the, the pandemic has kind of revolutionized the way the FDA is able to recruit because I mean, part of the problem that, and we we wrote about this a lot beforehand, was they couldn't recruit peop, enough people. And part of the problem, you know, part of the issue was you had to be in the office, you had to be in the DC area. So, you know, now that you're able to, and they, they would talk about how, like, you know, if, if somebody, decides to move well they have to quit and they can't stay so now you can say you can be fully remote you can work wherever you want if you or if you move if you like want to move to say you know you're in the dc area and you want to you know go to warmer climates or go to be closer to your family or so or your grandkids or or something you know you don't have to quit your job and and do something else you can you can keep uh, you can keep working, and they said that that's that's helped them retain a lot more people. It's helped it's expanded their candidate pool, uh, you know, for um, you know for new hires and so forth. So it, it actually is working out well. It, at least it, it's having some positive influences on their ability to fill all the open positions that they have, which has been a, a long time problem. The other interesting thing about this is that uh, it. it I know Janet Woodcock, when she was running Cedar, would had said this a few times that they don't have enough space for everybody at C, working at Cedar if they all wanted to be in the office. So she was saying, like, we have to have people won't work remotely because we don't have a place to put them all. So and they keep adding more employees. It seems like every every year, every user fee cycle, they say we're going to hire an additional X number. So. The more people they add, the, the more people that they're probably going to have to have work remotely just because they can't fit them all. So this is actually helping them avoid dealing with a space crunch that they have. So <laughs> it's 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 an it's an interesting kind of two sides of the coin here. But you know, you I still feel bad about seeing people go in and have them say like, you know, I was in this like empty hallway, there was nobody around, and it was like all dark and grim, and it just seems it just feels bad. Yes, that's certainly not an incentive to go into the office if you're just kind of uh, sitting alone uh, with the, uh, you know, the uh, motion sensor lights clicking off every uh, every so often. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a, uh, not a uh, not a fun uh, fun way to be uh, be, uh, be be working. So. Yeah, didn't we had an office that had that problem where if nobody <laughs> yes. moved for a while, the lights would all turn off. Yes, and speak, we, speak like, for experience. Like that, that kind of uh, <laughs> don't get don't get too immersed in your work, you'll you'll end up in the dark. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's all for this week. 
for more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Bridget Silverman, Brenda Sandberg, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.